Well, welcome to Titus 2 Woman, lesson number three. We call this lesson, What is a Servant? And it's very critical that we define from the Bible what a servant is so we can know if we are one or if we're not one or if we're just kind of somewhere in between what that looks like and how we can do that. Our curriculum that we've written here, it states first and foremost that the calling of every Christian, whether male or female, is twofold. You have two callings as a Christian. Your number one calling, according to Mark chapter 3, verse 14, is to be with Jesus Christ. When Jesus went up on a mountain and selected his 12 disciples, he said, and he called them to be with him. And then it says in that they would go forth and preach the gospel. Your number one calling as a Christian is to be with him, but your number two calling is to be a servant. And servitude looks differently depending on your assignment from God, but first and foremost, we serve God. We don't serve ourselves. We don't live for ourselves, even as the Bible says, no man lives for himself, and therefore no man certainly dies for himself or to himself. If you walk with Jesus, he will cause you to be a servant. If you are truly in a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you truly have a heartfelt walk with Him, your day-to-day -day fellowship with Jesus Christ, including your Bible study, your uh, prayer time, your church attendance, is going to produce a supernatural desire and ability in you to serve Jesus Christ by serving the local church, by serving fellow man, by serving the body of Christ. You cannot tell me you are right with God if you don't serve Him. It's impossible. The mindset of Jesus Christ is that of a servant. And if you take that mindset upon you through a daily relationship with Him, you can't help but want to serve in some capacity or another. If you're not a servant, you probably don't have a very close walk with the Lord. When folks backslide, when they betray Jesus Christ, they always abandon Christian service. When a Christian abandons Christian service, they typically will abandon the local church. And it's a shameful pattern to watch over and over again. Every Christian is obligated to strive to be a servant of the Lord. Many Christians never strive for biblical servitude and therefore they forfeit a rich life of provision and promotion in Christ. Now think about that. If you never serve Jesus Christ, you'll never know the richness and the blessing and the benefit that could be yours, that is yours, if, if you would truly just walk with Jesus a little closer and do things for Him. Serving Jesus Christ is the only thing that will make your life what it's meant to be. Living for yourself, chasing the American dream, chasing mommy or daddy's dream, chasing the college education dream, and we're not against college education, but if you're chasing something and it's not the will of God, you will automatically begin to forfeit life as you could know it. Many Christians never strive for biblical servitude and will therefore forfeit a rich life of provision and promotion in Christ. Simply being born again does not make you a servant. And you need to understand that. That uh, just because we're born again, just because we've given our life to Jesus Christ, or I should say because we've called upon Him for salvation, it doesn't mean you've given Him your life. Once you grow up and begin to give Jesus your life, you do so by serving Him. When you give someone your life, you are theirs to command, to, to uh, commission, to order around. And when you fully give your life to Jesus Christ, He'll make you a servant. 
Servitude is something that must be learned and then applied. And of course, with these lessons, we are teaching and educating the listener about servitude and about being a servant of Jesus Christ and obeying the Great Commission. And now it's your job, after having listened to these lessons and perhaps studying these curriculum, to then begin to apply it and practice it. It's not enough to know that you should be a servant. You have to go be a servant. So let's look at what the Bible says. Uh, well, we always like to bring it back to the Bible. We always like to look at different aspects of the scriptures. In our next lesson, or excuse me, our next section, we see that there are different grades of Christians. According to the Bible, God does not see every Christian the same. And you need to keep that in mind very strongly. God does not see all of us the same. Even in a local church, if you take a, a focus group, a select group, let's say you take a group of 20 Christians that attend every service, every prayer meeting. They serve in the same capacity of ministry of helps in that local church, and they all tithe. And you make everything equal as far as their activity and participation in the local church. You're going to find that they're not all equal in strength, they're not all equal in faith, they're not all equal in victory in life, because they're not all doing things the same in private. They may be doing all their th the same things publicly in the public church arena, but it doesn't mean they're actively pursuing, seeking, or applying their doctrine at home. And so even out of that select group of 20 that would be grade A, blue ribbon sheep, not all of those 20 will be equal. Some will be greater in the kingdom than others. And it will all be dependent upon their private, personal walk with Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible records that God sees different grades of Christians. Now, there's neither male nor female in Christ. We understand that. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. We understand that. But the Bible says in heaven there's great and small. The Bible says that on Judgment Day we'll all receive rewards and awards based upon our works. We want to look at several examples of the different ways in which God sees us. And these are all biblical examples. We don't look at anything but the Bible when we build doctrine. So our first allegory or first example that the Bible uses is that of stars. Abraham was made the father of many nations and many people. And his progeny continues to this day. Galatians and Romans bears that out. But the promise originally when the Lord spoke to Abraham, he said, I'm going to make your seed like the stars of the heavens. Hebrews 11:12 says, Therefore sprang they even of one, Abraham, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Now there's two applications there. Number one, you have two different things to, that, are, that are counted as innumerable. Sand, grains of sand are innumerable. We won't get into the mineralogy of sand because sand is not a mineral, it's a particle size. But then you also have stars which are in the sky, innumerable. But one is, a, is an earthly, natural allegory and the other is a heavenly, glorious allegory. So when you look at sand, sand represents Abraham's natural descendants, all made of dirt, Jews and non-Jews. And certainly out of Abraham's loins, many Jews and non-Jews have been born. Now, how do you, how do you argue non-Jews? Well, 
way before there was Israel, there was Abraham. And Abraham had two sons. Actually, he had more sons than that. But the two major ones were Isaac and Ishmael. And Ishmael went off to become the Arabians. His progeny, Ishmael's progeny, was the Arabians, which are definitely Gentile, non-Jewish. And then Isaac, through Isaac was the seed called and the promise called, and that became the nation of Israel. Isaac brought forth Jacob. Jacob had the 12 patriarchs, Joseph being the greatest. And into Egypt they went, and out of Egypt they came through Moses, and that was through the lineage of Isaac. But Moses had other sons, Ishmael the first, Isaac the second, and then other sons through his concubines, and they are all Gentiles, and their lineage today is Gentile in nature. Many nations came out of Abraham, and so the Bible calls them sand, innumerable, but natural. But the second allegory, the second representation is that of stars. Stars represent Abraham's supernatural descendants. We'd say Christians or believers. Now think about this, though. Every grain of sand looks the same because sand is a particle size. Now you can have silica sand. You can have calcite sand. You can have garnet sand. You can even have diamond sand. And so in that regard, they're all different chemical makeup, but they all look the same because it is a particle size. But even to the natural eye, looking up at the sky sky at night and to the stars of the heavens, all stars are not the same. Even during the day, you can look up every day and see a star called the sun. That's our closest star. It is, of course, the, the star that gives us light and heat and keeps our earth going. Every grain of sand looks the same, but every star is different in its size and brightness. In astronomy, there are orders or magnitudes of brightness. And I believe there are five magnitudes, one through five. Uh, I think five being the brightest, one being the, sm- the smallest or the dimmest. And so this is representative of how God sees us as Christians. We differ in our spiritual size and in our spiritual brightness. There's a famous star. I used to do a little bit of astronomy, amateur, very amateur astronomy. And uh, I was, I've always enjoyed the constellation Orion, which is one of the most easily distinguished in the sky, especially in the northern hemisphere. Everybody's probably familiar with Orion's belt. But in one of the shoulders of Orion, I think it's the upper right-hand shoulder, if you're facing Orion with his belt on the horizon, the upper right-hand shoulder, that star, is a famous star called Betelgeuse. It's actually what the movie was named after, the Tim Burton movie back in the 80s. But nobody could read and pronounce Betelgeuse, so they changed it to Betelgeuse. But Betelgeuse is a star that is actually 250 times bigger than our sun. The sun, if you were to look at it in the sky in the daytime and hold your hand out or your fist out at arm's length, the sun would rest in between your two knuckles. Uh, and I want to say that's one degree of horizon. Now, now if you know more astronomy than me, I, I'm probably pretty rusty on these terms because it's been about 17 years since I studied this. So the sun, if you were to stare at it, hopefully with sunglasses or protective vision on, and hold your fist out, you could make the sun rest in between your two knuckles. Because, and that, that's about one degree of horizon, 300, uh, not 360, maybe 180, I don't remember. Betelgeuse is 250 times bigger than our sun, which means if you were to put the star Betelgeuse 
where our sun is, Betelgeuse would take up the entire horizon. It would be all we could see. Now, that's not to say anything about the heat that would come off of it that would probably scorch us into oblivion, but that's how big Betelgeuse is. And that's a smaller star, too. When you look at the stars in the heavens, they're different sizes and they're different magnitudes of brightness. And this is an allegory for how God sees us. He sees Christians as different brightnesses and different sizes, different levels of maturity, different levels of responsibility. Some of us give off more light than others, and Jesus Christ commands us to so let our light shine. And the bigger we grow in Christ, the brighter our light, the more people we can draw to us and then point to Jesus. So I ask, how big are you? How bright are you? And are you doing anything to improve both of those? Our next example is vessels. Our next allegory are vessels. The Bible teaches that we are all God's vessels if we're born again, but not all vessels are equal. 2 Timothy 2.20 says, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. So even in the local house of God, we have honorable vessels and dishonorable vessels. We have gold and silver vessels. We have wood and earth vessels. Now these have to do with the material from which they're made. And in the natural eye, they have to do with what their value is as a vessel. But honestly, when you're dying of thirst, you don't care what the vessel's made out of. All you care about is what's in the vessel. A vessel of gold is worth nothing in the desert if it's empty and you're dying of thirst. A vessel of wood is the most priceless thing in the world. If it's in the desert, it's full of water and you're dying of thirst. In God's house, there are many types of vessels. The material of which they are made is insignificant for our purpose here. The emphasis of this verse is the type of vessel, honorable or dishonorable. Not every vessel in the kingdom of God is counted as honorable. What you're made of doesn't determine your worth to God. What color you are, what your education level is, what your past is, none of that matters to God. What God is concerned with is what's in you. Is honor in you or is it dishonor that's in you? Are you a bright star or a dim star? Are you an honorable vessel or a dishonorable vessel? What about saints? Even when the Bible uses the term saints there is still a pecking order. we got a couple verses to back that up. All Christians are classified as saints. Now, if you're Catholic, that word trips you up because the Catholics have hijacked the biblical use of the word saint and they've made superheroes out of them. <laughs> I totally reject that notion. All Christians are classified as saints. If you're born again, you're a saint. You're a saint. The word saint just means holy one, righteous one. This is the, the generic term used for every born-again child of God. And the Bible records levels of saints. So Ephesians 3.8 says this. It says, the least of the saints. If Paul is talking about, I am the least of the saints, there is apparently a ranking of just the minimal of saints. Paul, because of his murderous past, considered himself to be less than the least of all saints. So if Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Ghost, uses the term least of saints and then says he's less than that, that begins to infer 
that not all saints are equal in the eyes of God. We also have the term excellent saints. The psalmist prayed for God's people in Psalm 16, 3. And he said, the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Notice that the psalmist begins by talking about the saints. That would mean the righteous ones. And then he says, and to the excellent, which means he's subcategorized the believers in his day and said there are the saints and then there are those that excel saints. There, there are those that are more excellent. So we have less than the least and then we have more than the ex- we have the excellent which are more than the middle class. And apparently there are lesser saints, saints and then there are excellent saints. Faithful. Faithful is a term not every Christian has earned. Paul addressed this in his epistles to the Ephesians and Colossian churches. Now think about this. What we've said so far is that not all Christians are the same in the eyes of God. And we're defining what a servant is. We're looking at this here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Verse, uh, the second part of verse 1 says, To the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Notice again, just because you're a saint doesn't mean the Apostle Paul or the Lord Jesus would classify you as faithful. To the saints and to the faithful. There's this inference that faithful is a higher order of sainthood or being a saint. If you're born again, you're a saint, but that doesn't mean you're faithful to church. If you're born again, you're a saint. That doesn't mean you're faithful to tithe. If you're born again, you're a saint. It doesn't mean that you're faithful to help build the kingdom. We would rather be called faithful because if, a, if you're born again, you're a saint. But just because you're born again doesn't mean you've been found faithful or counted worthy to be put into the ministry. Colossians 1-2 says the same thing to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae. Notice saints and faithful. Saints just go to church. To be counted faithful in Christ Jesus is a whole different level of Christianity. A level many Christians will never know. And again, we're building the case that not all Christians are viewed the same in the eyes of God. There are things you can do to increase your merit or increase your worth or increase your value to the kingdom. And then there are things you can do to decrease it. Servants. Very few Christians actually strive for this title, much less obtain it. And this title of servant, this is the highest grade of Christian there is. Revelations 19.5b says this, Praise our God, all ye His servants, and ye that fear Him, both small and great. Think about that verse. Just pause there. Selah. Think about that. Praise God, it says, all ye his servants and ye that fear him, both small and great. This verse is listing four types of believers. Servants, fearful, or those that revere him, small and great. You can't look at that verse and tell me God sees everybody the same, even in the kingdom. He sees servants, 
He sees those that revere him, but maybe don't serve him. And then he sees small and great. Those that are small in the kingdom, those that are great in the kingdom, those that are small servants, those that are great servants, those that revere him and that are small in their reverence, and those that revere him that are great in their reverence. Evidently, just fearing God is not enough to make you a servant because they're distinguished. Going to church is not enough to make you a servant. You must make yourself a servant. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. Paul said, I have made myself servant unto all. Too many carnal Christians get hung up on the first part. I'm free from all men. I'm free from all men. Yeah, you're free. You should be free from their opinions. You should be free from their, their, their peer pressure. You should be free from their slander and its influence. You should be free from their desire to control you. But just because you're free from them doesn't mean you're free to abandon them. You must then, as you mature, turn around and make yourself a servant back to those you've been liberated from. Even as the Lord told Paul, actually he told Ananias about Paul, I know he told Paul, excuse me, I'm going to deliver you from the people I send you to. Delivered from their effects, delivered from their opinions, delivered from their complaints, delivered from their Facebook account. Just because you're free from all men doesn't mean you're free to abandon them. You must then turn around, grow up in Christ, and make yourself a servant to all that you might gain the more. God wants us to be his servants. Mark 10, says, Whosoever of you will be the chiefest or the greatest shall be servant of all. So this title of servant appears to be the highest position, title, or honor you can earn in the kingdom. Let me say that again. This title, this position of servant, it has to be earned. It isn't just bequeathed to you through the new birth. Now, when you get born again, you're automatically called the righteousness of God in Christ. When you get born again, you're automatically called a son or daughter of God. When you get born again, you are automatically called in your calling. If you're an apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, or teacher, you are given that calling according to the foreknowledge of Jesus Christ. You did not earn that title or that calling. It was given you before the foundation of the world. Of all the callings, of all the titles, of all the positions, the only one that can be earned, the only one is that of servant. This is the greatest title in the Bible for a human being. Even Paul said, Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ. Jude said, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. He didn't say Jude, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. This is our greatest calling, is to be a servant. Would God call you His faithful, honorable, bright, shining star of a servant? Or would He call you a dishonorable, dimly lit, lesser saint? Because you're either tracking in one of two directions as a Christian today. You're either aiming for and striving for this title of faithful, honorable, bright, shining star of a servant or you're backsliding and becoming this dishonorable, dimly lit, lesser saint. I don't want to be a lesser saint. I don't want my kids to be lesser saints. I don't want any of my sheep to be lesser saints. 
I'm trying to raise up a church full of bright, shining stars of greater servants, not dimly lit black hole lesser saints. Amen. Servanthood is your responsibility. We are responsible for making ourselves a servant of God. The new birth will make you righteous. The new birth will make you a saint. The new birth will make you a child of God. The baptism of the Holy Ghost will make you spirit-filled, but only you can make yourself a servant. We are in control of our walk with God and therefore the brightness of our walk. How high and bright do you aspire to be in Christ? How deep are you willing to go in God? Let me add another verse here that comes to mind. It's often quoted and perhaps I misuse it all the time too if I was to be perfectly honest in the hermeneutic of it. But in the first Corinthians chapter two, Paul says that the natural man receives not the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness unto him. This is verse 14. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. So the subject is being spiritual. When we're spiritual, we're able to judge all things. When the Spirit of God rests upon you, you're able to make discerning, wise, Holy Ghost-inspired decisions, and you're able to judge things according to the Spirit of the Word of God. The next verse says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? Now, notice it asks the question, Who has known the mind of God, that we might instruct him? Nobody knows God well enough to boss him around. Who's going to instruct God? Who's going to give God instructions? Who's going to give God correction? Who's authorized to give God counsel? Who's authorized to give God their opinion? God has never asked anybody what they thought. As if he didn't have the answer. If God asks a question, it's never for his benefit. It's always for the person being asked. When he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? God was not ignorant of the answer. He wanted Paul to hear the himself answer. When he said, Adam, where are you? He knew exactly where Adam was. He wasn't asking for his own benefit. He was asking for Adam's benefit. Nobody has known the mind of God that they may instruct him. But the last part of this verse says, but we have the mind of Christ. Now, we often quote that verse to talk about how smart we can be. Or if I'm praying for knowledge and wisdom, I say, Lord, give me the mind of Christ. But that's not what the mind of Christ is in reference to. In Philippians chapter 2, we see biblically what the mind of Christ is. If 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, Who has known the mind of God that we may boss him around, but we have the mind of Christ, well then finding out what the mind of Christ is would help us to further understand 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So what is the mind of Christ? For, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. So here we have what the mind of Christ is. We have the mind of Christ. Philippians 2 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Here's the mind of Christ. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant. 
Notice that the mind of Christ is one of humility and becoming a servant. You and I, if we're going to have the mind of Christ, must take upon ourselves the cloak of humility and the form of a servant. That's the only way we can do it. He goes on to say, And was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now this is a pattern for what we're to do as Christians. We're to take upon ourselves the form of a servant. We're to become of no reputation. What that means is you can be bossed around. What that means is you can receive correction. When you have no reputation, you don't defend yourself. When you have no reputation, correction is a delight to you. When you have reputation, you can't stand correction. But then again, if you can't stand correction, you don't really have the mind of Christ. You're a know-it-all. You're not a servant. And it says, being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. When you humble yourself, you'll be able to finally obey God. The reason you and I don't obey God, apparently, is because of some pride. Humility helps us to obey. Pride helps us to resist. We're supposed to resist sin, submit to God, not resist God and submit to sin. Pride helps us resist God. That's not a good thing. But taking upon us the form of a servant will help us humble ourselves and become obedient, even obedient unto death. Now this verse goes on to say exactly what kind of death Christ experienced. That was death on the cross. But you and I were to take up our cross daily. How do we take up our cross daily? By obeying Jesus Christ and being a servant. Being a servant crucifies your flesh. Being a servant makes you get up early, makes you stay later, makes you answer phone calls you don't want to answer, makes you come to church when you'd rather stay home and watch football. Being a servant helps crucify your flesh. Being a servant will teach you to obey Jesus Christ until your flesh is totally dead. And that's what we are all aiming for, to glorify Jesus Christ. We are in control of our walk with God and therefore the brightness of our walk. And the Bible commands us to take upon ourselves the form of a servant, that we're to have this mind in us that was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 9 goes on to say, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Uh, Again, the application for us in this verse is that if we would really humble ourselves and become a servant, God could begin to promote us. Have you ever noticed the greatest names in the world in the kingdom are the greatest servants? We talk about Paul to this day. We talk about Peter to this day. We talk about James and John to this day. And we talk about Jude to this day. Uh, We talk about John the Revelator to this day because they were servants and they lived to bless the body of Christ. They lived to win the loss. They lived to win the kingdom. They did not live to be a Fortune 500 CEO. They lived for the church. They lived for the body of Christ. They were not their own. They had made and fashioned themselves to be like a servant. How high and bright do you aspire to be in Christ? How deep are you willing to go in God? Just being a Sunday morning Christian is pretty shallow. And that's unfortunate for many people that might be listening because you maybe only have a Sunday morning service to go to. If you're in a town where there's a stricter church that preaches the word more passionately, that allows the Holy Ghost to move, you may want to go to that church because they probably have a Sunday night service. In modern America, 
it's the trendy, secular, seeker thing to cancel Sunday night services. Now, I understand some regions have never had Sunday night services, not in 300 years. And I understand uh, some places they have to meet on a Friday or a Saturday due to regional culture. I'm speaking now just to the American experience. It used to be most churches had Sunday morning and Sunday night services with Sunday school. But that's not cool with secular Christians today. And so one of the one of the signs of a church cooling off is that they're canceling services, not because they don't have enough people, but because uh, folks just don't come out like they used to on a Sunday night. That's not good. Uh, the answer is more of God, not less. The answer is truthfully more teaching, more church, more worship services, more prayer services, not less. If your church is more of a commercialized entertainment package, you probably need to abandon that church and find one that actually still serves Jesus Christ. So let's look at this word servants in the original language, these original definitions. Much can be learned from the original Bible language. Below are the definitions of both the Hebrew and Greek words for servant or handmaiden. Now I think it's interesting because this is a ladies lesson or a ladies curriculum, I've chosen the feminine form for both of these words and a lot can be learned from it though I think the heart can be also applied to any man listening. So the Hebrew word is shipshack, which is kind of fun to say, shipshack. This is the Hebrew word for handmaiden, which is, is the word for servant. And in the Hebrew it means it's an extension of the family. So in, in Hebrew culture, if you had a handmaiden, if you had a shipshack, this was basically an extended member of family because your shipshack would be entrusted to train your children to raise your children, maybe even be the wet nurse that would nurse your babies when you couldn't. This was a very, very, very trusted member of the family. In fact, if you remember, it was a ship shack that was given to Abraham to have a baby. That ship shack's name was Hagar. And Hagar uh, gave birth to Ishmael. Uh, Hagar was Sarah's ship shack. She was trusted. She was so trusted, she was given to Abraham so Abraham could have sex with her. Now that thing blew up tremendously and made a mess for the whole family. But we see how trusted these handmaidens were. They had earned, though they were servants, they were slaves. They, they had earned a, a, a position of trust. They were an extension of family. Abraham, when he argued with God, he said, Lord, who is to be my heir? Seeing as how I have no one in my family except my steward, Eleazar. Now, Eleazar, being a steward, he would have been the, the male form of this word shipshack. He was a steward. He would have been the inheritor uh, and would have received everything of Abraham's had Abraham never had a son. The word also means maidservant, slave girl, as belonging to a mistress. Uh, the word also means to speak with humility. When you're a servant, you speak with humility. You don't speak with pride. You don't speak with arrogance. You speak with humility. Now, the Greek word is more fascinating. Some of you may be even familiar with the Greek word, though you don't realize it's Greek, but it's the Greek word doula. Now, doula is where we get the form. A doula is like a birthing coach in today's society. A doula is there to help uh, like a, a home nurse that helps you give birth at home. I mean, what is a doula? A doula is a doula. A doula is the feminine form of the word servant. And this word means to ensnare or to capture. 
And therefore, it evolved to become a female slave or a bondmaid. In, in the Roman times, your servants were often your enemy combatant that you conquered in war, and rather than kill them on the battlefield, you captured them and made them your possession. When the centurion comes to Jesus Christ in Matthew 8 and says, My servant lieth at home grievously vexed, only speak the word, and he'll be healed. When he said, My servant, he, he was a centurion, this man. He was saying, This was my former enemy. This was a man that could have killed me on the battlefield, but instead I overcame him. I could have killed him, but I didn't. I decided to keep him as a slave. That's who he's talking about. That would have been the male form of the word doula. And yet that servant was so faithful to the centurion, the centurion went to find Jesus Christ to ask for mercy in preserving this servant's life. This servant who was a slave, who was probably a tremendously trained military leader and probably wealthy in his own right till he went to war against a Roman soldier and lost. But that would have been the word doula or the male form. One who worships God and submits to Him. So the Greek New Testament begins to apply the word handmaid, nor doula, as one who worships God and submits to Him. Because truthfully, in New Testament doctrine, we are God's bondmaids. We are God's bondservants. He has purchased us. He has captured us. When we were yet His enemy in life, Christ died for us and captured us, and now we belong to Him. This is a person of servile condition. Means again, we serve. One who gives himself or herself up wholly to another's will. So when you're truly a servant, you give up all your will and you submit your will, your plans, your purposes at the feet of Jesus Christ on a regular basis. That does not mean he's never going to let you do some things you want to do. It does mean you're always submitting to him. You submit your vacation plans to the Lord Jesus Christ. You submit your investment plans. You submit where your children go to college. You don't let your kids pick where they go to college. You kidding me, Mom and Dad? You're paying for it. The government doesn't trust them yet. Why are you trusting your kids to pick their college? They might be in a place by the time they're 17, definitely not 16, when they start talking about where they're going to go to college. But maybe by the time they're 17 or 18, they might have enough maturity in them that they can begin to pray with you, mom and dad, to begin to perceive and judge where the Spirit of God would have them go to school. But you don't pick your college. You let God pick your college if God calls you to go to college. You submit all your will to God, all your plans, the house you want to buy, the church you attend. All of this is submitted to God if you're a servant. Those who service, the, uh, the, the definition also means those who, whose service is used by Christ in extending and advancing His cause among men. So we're talking about preachers now, servants, soul winners. Every one of you, even if you're not a full-time minister, you're called to preach, you're called to evangelize, you're called to win souls. The other Greek use means the true worshipers of Christ. So there's those that worship Christ. <laughs> And then there are the true worshipers. What makes you a true worshiper? You don't just worship, you serve. Service, Christian service is worship towards God. It's your life being burnt on the burnt offering, the burnt altar where there's nothing left of you. It's all God, all the time. 
from the word dio, which means to bind, therefore a slave, originally the lowest term in the scale of servitude. It came also to mean one who gives himself up to the will of another. The best definition here is devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interests. That is mature Christianity. That is very rare in today's society. To be a bond servant, to be a a doula, means in its root, to be devoted to another, in this case, Jesus Christ. To be devoted to Jesus Christ to the disregard of your own personal interests. That's not social media Christianity. That's not Sunday morning purple light Christianity. That's not coffee bar Christianity. That's some hardcore Christianity right there. That's how the gospel advances. On its basic level, being a bondservant is simply following your master to the complete disregard of your own will, your own emotions, and your own desires. This is what we need to aim for as Christians. And the final definition of doula means subservient, prepared to obey others unquestioningly, to make yourself less important, and to be subordinate. Now, when we serve Jesus Christ, it's okay to ask questions. When we serve Jesus Christ, it's okay to ask Him the how and the when, as long as we do it with the right heart. But the heart behind this definition of subservient is you're prepared to obey Him, even if He never answers the questions. God's not against questions. He wants us to come to Him. Many of His great people in the Bible ask Him questions, and God graciously answered them. But there are times he may not answer the questions. Your obedience is not dependent upon you getting an answer. Your obedience is dependent upon you being faithful to him or not. You've got to be prepared to be obedient even if he doesn't answer your questions. There's been many hardships I've been through as a Christian and a pastor. And I said, Lord, why did this happen? How did this go this way? And he was silent. And even when I recognized he was silent, I'd say, Lord, I don't understand all of it. I don't get all of it, but I still trust you. Lord, I don't get all of it, but I still trust you. We have to be prepared to do that. And because, Lord, I still trust you, I'll still obey you. So in conclusion here, it should be apparent from the simple Hebrew and Greek definitions that many of today's Christians are nowhere near being true servants of Christ. God has purchased us for Him and His use. Our life is no longer our own. We are to live by His will, not chase our whims or our personal dreams. Jeremiah 29, 11, a very famously quoted scripture, especially when people have messed up and are condemned. Uh, it's often misquoted, but I like to remind people, there's a lot of talk in our society about chasing your dreams and God wants to fulfill your dreams. God does not want to fulfill your dreams unless they came from Him. Because God said in Jeremiah 29, 11, to the Jews who were about to be slaves for at least 70 years. He said, I know the plans I have for you. I know the dreams I have for you. God is not interested in your dreams. He's not interested in your plans unless, of course, they are His. If He didn't give them to you, flush them down the toilet, wipe the grease board, control-alt-delete, cleanse the hard drive, and start over. And do what you know to do. And be a true servant of Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you for this lesson. I thank you for all those listening to these recordings. I call this pod school lesson blessed. 
May this build tremendous servitude and faithfulness in the heart and minds of your believers. Bless all those that hear these lessons. May it continue to challenge them and strengthen them. And may they develop a closer walk with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.